Section 19, Bill G., the manager. Intello-what? Bill Gates. At 38, having grown Microsoft as CEO from the start, Bill was leading Microsoft at a global scale that in 1993 was comparable to an industrial-era CEO. Even the legendary Thomas Watson Jr., son of the IBM founder, did not leave IBM until his 40s. Microsoft could never have scaled the way it did had Bill G. managed via a centralized hub-and-spoke system with everything bottlenecked through him. In many ways, this was Bill G.'s product leadership gift to Microsoft, a deeply empowered organization that also had deep product conversations at the top and across the whole organization. Bill honed the set of undocumented principles that defined interactions with product groups. The times of legendary Bill G. reviews characterized by hardcore challenges and even insults had mostly become a thing of the past, excepting the occasional sentimental outburst. More generally, they were a collective memory of hyper-growth moments any startup experiences, only before the modern era when such stories were more commonly understood. Much later, in 2006, when Bill G. announced his intent to transition from full-time Microsoft and part-time philanthropy to full-time philanthropy, many reporters surprised him by asking how Microsoft would continue without his coordination of technical strategy and oversight. But even in the early 90s, at the height of the deepest and most challenging technical strategy questions, he never devoted the bulk of his time to micromanaging product development. He spent a good deal of time engaged with products, but there were far too many at too many different stages of development to micromanage them. In many ways, this was the opposite of the approach Steve Jobs took, even if both were known for their own forms of challenging interactions. The most obvious contrast between the two was the breadth of the product line and the different market touch points. There's an online video from the early 1980s showing the breadth of Microsoft's products, even if it's early days. It's also a rather campy video worth watching. Having grown up through development tools and languages, I was familiar with Microsoft's product line, but only as technical assistant did it become clear how comparatively broad Microsoft had become so quickly. The software world was thought of through a lens of major categories, operating systems, tools and languages, networking, applications, all roughly mirroring Microsoft's org chart. The latter was thought of as word processing, spreadsheets, graphics, databases, as well as smaller categories also mirroring its org chart. It was easy to identify leaders in each of those areas, names were the, were the, that were the tip of the tongue at the time, and most of which were no longer in the PC software space. IBM, Borland, Novell, WordPerfect, Lotus, Ashton Tate, and many more. The aha moment of the early 1990s was the realization that no company on that list was competing in more than one category. Microsoft was hardly winning in every category, in fact, in most categories, it was a new entry, a distant second, or even third place. But Microsoft was in every space. Bill G. was committed and patient. Microsoft was relentless, and Microsoft was focused on Windows. Bill had fostered Microsoft with a grand vision to compete in every category of PC software from some of the earliest days. With rare exceptions, no other company set out to do just that. Bill G. led a deep technical strategy. It started with the operating system, supported by tools and languages, and then using those to build applications. It seemed simple enough. In fact, it was what IBM built for mainframes and DEC built for minicomputers. There was a crucial difference. Microsoft did not build hardware and was not vertically integrated to reduce competition. Microsoft built an operating system on an openly architected PC, 
the same Intel-based architecture that came to power both Macintosh and Linux years later. And it published APIs so that anyone could build tools and applications for the operating system, an open hardware platform and open operating system APIs. This approach simply addressed all the early challenges Microsoft itself faced in trying to figure out how to build winning applications. It was so busy dealing with dozens of proprietary computing platforms, each, each with their own tools and APIs, just different enough to make things difficult, but not so different as to be valuable. Bill saw the value in software and in openness at key points in the overall architecture. At the formation of the company, he and Paul Allen saw the immense and expansive value of software and, essentially, the liability that being in the hardware business carried. Building Microsoft's software-only business on an open hardware platform where many players competed to drive prices down while maintaining compatibility with the operating system was one of the all-time great strategy choices. The idea of building hardware seemed like a sucker's bet with low margins, manufacturing, and inventory, the baggage of the physical world. While Microsoft would dabble in peripherals or hardware that could bootstrap new PC scenarios, building whole computers was a headache better left to others. Expanding the impact of that breadth of software strategy was Bill G's day-to-day -day operating model, not micromanaging the specifics of any given project. I'm painting with this with a broad brush, intentionally so. Part of the difference between the then-dominant cultures of systems and apps was that during the Mike Maples era, and arguably during the earlier Jeff Harbors era, apps weaned itself from Bill's intense and constant scrutiny, whereas the systems culture more clearly embraced that dynamic. That was largely true until Paul Moritz took a more hands-off or walled-off approach to the nurturing of the Windows NT project. In his May 1991 email, Challenges and Strategy, Bill set the company on the Windows strategy, clarifying for the foundations for every product and group, solidifying what had been complex platform choices every team faced. Regardless of whether Bill was a savant when it came to the technical details of projects or he simply remembered everything each group sent or told him, he operated the company at a higher level of abstraction than reporters believed to be the case in 2008 when he ultimately reduced his full-time commitment to Microsoft. I had a glimpse of this when our AFX team had our pivotal review. Later, as TA, I was there to connect the dots and amplify the Windows strategy. By and large, the company was still wrapping itself around the details of what it really meant to embrace Windows exclusively. That, and coping with the myriad of choices and decisions that come from the tension between aligning with the Windows strategy and having some control over your own destiny as a product. Which version of Windows? When is that shipping? Will the APIs our product needs be in Windows? Will those APIs work on older versions of Windows or the next version of Windows? What about Windows NT? On which microprocessors? What about the other parts of Microsoft? The questions were endless. This was truly big company stuff. The strategy at a high level is one thing, but execution across the 1994 $600 million research and development budget was another. The fascinating thing was how products so quickly scaled beyond what Bill personally experienced as a programmer, both in size and technology specifics. This was to be expected. By any measure, the company was huge, but people and Bill himself still expected to interact on product details as though he was a member of the product team. I often found myself looking for ways to help Bill engage at that level, even if just for show. In addition to the Windows strategy, with the late 1993 launch of Office 4, Microsoft also declared 1994 the year of Office. 
It was the biggest launch for apps and represented a major pivot of the organization to the opportunity of selling a suite of products. This too was in the earliest days of a strategy, one that I would end up spending a significant time on as TA and then later as a member of the team. The online version includes a 1993 advertisement for the launch of Office 4. Just because Bill G. operated a level of abstraction across product groups did not preclude product groups from engaging on what might seem like relatively small, non-technical matters. One of the more entertaining meetings I attended was preparing for that launch of Office 4, which was a worldwide event complete with a reporter given permission to shadow the team. A key differentiator would be how the user would experience intelligence in the product, so that it understood what was intended and how to achieve it in the new version of Office. The development team built a series of features along the lines of what was termed basic use, such as the new autocorrect in Word, auto filter in Excel tables, and a host of wizards, guided step-by-step flows such as for creating charts, and many more. To bring them together and actually communicate with the market and on retail packaging, the marketing team came up with an umbrella term, Pete Higgins, email Pete H., came over to brief Bill on that choice in a small meeting in Bill's office. Pete was by then the spiritual leader in the business side of apps. He rose through the ranks of Excel and was clearly Mike's lead executive. Pete was the kind of calm and in-control leader that everyone enjoyed working for. He was at once clearly the boss, but also a member of the team. Pete was a native of the Seattle area, a high school football star, and a Stanford graduate. He was a new generation of Microsoft product executive, coming from the business and not the coding side. For me in my technical assistant role, Pete was one of my biggest supporters and mentors and made connecting with apps super easy. Sitting at the little couch under the Intel chip processor after going through the details of the launch, Pete said the proverbial, Bill, there is one more thing. Bill, rocking in his chair, shook his head, given that the meeting was mostly an uneventful recap of the upcoming press tour. Pete went on to explain the problem of communicating all the features and how Microsoft needed a term to market and describe them. Pete was dancing around this because he knew Bill well enough that Bill was not a fan of marketing. Ever so delicately, Pete said, this is your chance. We want to get go with this term, but if you don't like it, Pete then said, IntelliSense. Microsoft Office introduces IntelliSense. Bill's reply, IntelliWhat? Pete again tried to position the positioning, his instinct about resistance proving correct. It is IntelliSense. It means that Office has built-in intelligence, and it understands what you need and how to do it. Bill, still not warming up, went full pedantic. What is intelligence? Is there a prologue rules engine? A neural network? He was also making the scrunched-up surprise look that he does, which turns out, once you realize it, to also be a bit sarcastic. It meant he was warming up. A few more times back and forth, and Pete just made Bill say IntelliSense in a sentence one more time, which he did with a kind of devilish smirk. Done. The online version includes the New York Times review of Office 4, featuring a plentiful use of IntelliSense from October of 1993. Looking back, this all seems absurd. Consternation over a single phrase, literally seeking approval to use it from the CEO of a billion-dollar company, all on the heels of what was no doubt months of preparation, including getting Steve Ballmer's approval, which was actually critical. Finally, the theater that Pete would pull the plug a few weeks before the tour. In some ways, this was the app's way of bringing decisions to Bill. It really wasn't a choice. It had been broadly vetted and was buttoned up. Any debate would probably be theater more than anything. 
On average, there was one product-focused meeting on most days. Most teams saw Bill once or maybe twice a year. Nathan Mervold saw Bill most every day, or at least in most every technology context, present day and far out there. Most executives like Paul Moritz, Pete Higgins, leading apps, or Susan Boshin, email Susan B, leading consumer, saw Bill in product review context several times a month because each had many ongoing projects, or in the case of the big projects, like operating systems, many large components. Everyone was in constant contact over email. Bill was always forwarding emails across the company, adding relevant people from all levels of the organization to the CC line, and never backed off a good reply-all opportunity. Phone or in-person one-on-ones were not the typical way of interacting across the product team. For the most part, work happened in groups, or at least with an audience, with outcomes and flare-ups quickly disseminated by email. I found myself constantly on the move, walking around campus from one building to the next to meet people in person. Rarely was I in my office, a pattern that continued my entire career. I was often asked to meet with teams before they met with Bill. They hoped for insight into how Bill might think about choices and decisions, or even the presentation overall. I often disappointed teams in these pre-meetings since I was hardly a stand-in for Bill G, and I was hardcore about leaving any such impression. Pre-meetings gave me a chance to better understand the issues the team was struggling with and to make sure those were brought forward in an objective and transparent manner. The fastest path to failure was to structure a conversation so Bill discovered an issue rather than having it revealed to him. To be fair, an equally fast path to failure was a first slide listing a slew of problems and issues in the hopes of inoculating the remainder of the meeting. In that case, I would caution teams that they were exposing themselves to the inevitable how-can-this-be-so-difficult comments right at the start of the meeting. Getting this balance right was the essence of leaving an effective product meeting. For most meetings, I wrote a summary meeting preview. Even though Bill said he didn't want this, I couldn't help myself. While he was always effective, I felt that a little bit of specifics could go a long way in making the meeting more effective and less random. I could tell he had read my mail if he raised a point verbatim from my note, and frequently he would kick off the meeting doing so, never crediting me, of course. In these and in all mails talking about other teams, I always tried to separate the facts of the meeting, the team's analysis, and my own opinion. Bill was transparent with email and thought little of forwarding an entire thread. I learned their applications of that the hard way. As an example of where I failed to follow my own rules about facts versus opinion, I totally offended Jim Alchin, email Jim All, leading the Cairo project, see the next section, on the role of a specific technology in distributed programming. Not only did Jim inform me that my opinions were wrong, but also that I stepped all over his own PhD dissertation as a leading expert on the topic. In hindsight, this was terrifying. Jim's reply was brutal, but it proved a good early learning experience, so to speak. While the product line was already broad, the expansion into entirely new areas was unstoppable. On most any product area, we were forming an opinion, beginning to work, or already in the market. There was not a booth at a trade show, a focused conference, or a major company looking to partner that Microsoft was not already connected to or connecting with in some way. While Microsoft was in the earliest days of achieving a PC in every home, about 25% of U.S. households in 1993, and on every desktop, about half of U.S. workers in 1993, every day in this job was either furthering that or expanding beyond homes and desktops from the data centers to handhelds to airplanes. The first in-flight PC-based system was an early partnership between Microsoft and an airline, including a certification for Windows Server. Product meetings had no set format or a structure and usually reflected the culture of the organization. 
This might be a surprise to some, as many CEOs, or perhaps their staff, might have imposed some more rigor on meetings. Microsoft had two bountiful gardens, but there were microcultures throughout the company. One group did slick and well-rehearsed presentations. A mother might present research-heavy deep dives. Bill often pushed a team outside its comfort zone, deliberately pushing the team to discuss places they were less prepared or even less interested. It was a technique he employed. He once said to me, why spend all the time with the Windows team talking about architecture if that was their predisposition anyway? This was also a strategy to level the playing field. Talking about architecture to Windows or ease of use to Excel was too lopsided, and Bill was disadvantaged. The reality of Bill G. Reviews never lived up to the lore. Most meetings progressed without incident, meaning without yelling. Sometimes, though, there were comments such as, that was the stupidest thing I ever heard, or that is brain dead. The worst was, that's trivial, let me show you. Those were all the cliches that teams anticipated, but then wore as a badge of honor later. They happened with far less frequency compared to how much they were talked about. Even over the short period of time I worked as TA, Bill became more intentional in his use of meeting dynamics. Still, the first seconds of a meeting remained of a bit of a mood thermometer. Pity those for whom it was clearly a bad day. When meetings ended up bad, it was because the team was poorly prepared or they came to talk about the project in a way that diverged from expectations. There were typical capital offenses in the meetings, such as failing to understand a product strategy of competitors or downplaying a competitor's potential. Worst was coming across as though a product was making mostly tackled decisions driven by schedule or failing to understand the architecture of the product relative to the evolving platform and related teams across Microsoft. Pivot tables were just making their way across most teams, so many were still making the common errors of using static charts or graphs that always seemed to have the data oriented or filtered in the least useful way. Those omens always held for potential of a lively discussion. Part of my role was to reduce the potential for such liveliness ahead of time. I tried to alert teams about potential issues without acting as a surrogate for Bill and to make sure meetings did not save the difficult or bad news for the end, as previously mentioned. I was also there to throw myself on the grenade, so to speak, and get meetings back on track by helping the team through a tough moment, usually by restating or interpreting what they were saying or by redirecting the topic at hand to a follow-up discussion. By far, the biggest strategic error one could make was knowingly duplicating code outside core expertise and then compounding that by attempting to explain why in this particular case it was justified. Microsoft Publisher was a new product in the desktop publishing category. It was being built by the consumer division under the leadership of one Melinda French, email Melinda F. The product aimed for the small business and non-professional market compared to the incumbent Aldous PageMaker. It differentiated itself with ease of use features, pioneering wizards, and other user interface innovations. But it also printed pages that looked a lot like what one should be able to create with the flagship Microsoft Word. This overlap was the source of endless consternation. Why can't they share code? Why can't Word do all these features? And then ultimately, why does Publisher even exist? Yet customers loved it. At one point, a meeting went down a rabbit hole over bullets and numbering, and how Publisher was basically writing all the same code Word was and wasting everyone's resources. There was little actionable in this kind of rant, but it did establish the norm of being called out for redundancy and the need to be prepared to cope with the feedback. Bill maintains a deep commitment to evaluating a portfolio of efforts, and even with this in a single product, he believed in the portfolio approach of features. 
Not every product nor every feature was a winner or even a breakthrough, but on the whole, something needed to be working. As much as Bill might give a group a difficult time, as happened with the early Visual C++, he knew there was always more to the product and more products to the company. It was not just that Bill was building a product portfolio for Microsoft. He was managing the teams as portfolios of teams. This portfolio approach created a resilience in the company, resilient to the unpredictable nature of technology bets and to the ability of the people on the team to execute. Not everything went as planned, nor did every planned bet ultimately make sense. Whether deliberate or not, Bill had three axes that created a constant state of balance of push and pull across the hundred teams creating software. Bill's approach of constantly balancing the tension between innovation and shipping, expanding the portfolio while maintaining coherency, and the injection of new ideas while also executing on a work strategy proved to be the most interesting management lessons. The next three sections are examples of each of these dimensions.